Well, I guess I'm from a migrant background myself and being from a visible minority, it's hard to avoid questions of um, race, ethnicity, racism and living in Sydney. It's just such an everyday issue that um, you come across how to deal with people who are different from yourself and how to, I suppose, think about on a broader level how our society can adapt to increasing diversity and really make the most of it. In 2016, it was estimated that around 55% of the world's population now lived in cities. And by 2030, urban areas are projected to house 60% of the world's population. And when it comes to intercultural tensions, little attention has been given to what's happening inside the apartment buildings of our cities. These tensions are, of course, connected to the gradual shift away from Anglo-centric migrants from countries such as the UK, and the increase in migrants from countries such as China and India. Today, we're talking to Chris Ho from the University of Technology and Edgar Liu from the University of New South Wales about how high-density living and cultural diversity are changing the way we live in Australian cities. First up, Edgar Liu from the University of New South Wales. There are two different issues. So one is that you, when you purchase an apartment, you purchase a share in the whole building. So you actually co-own the building or at least part of the building. Uh, so it's very important that you get to have a say to what is going to happen to your building. And because you're living so close together, you see each other day in and day out, it's important that you get along, uh, not necessarily that you need to be you know, friends all the time, but you know, in order to avoid conflicts, uh, particularly uh, that can also influence the whole governance and management of building as well. So it's very important for those two aspects. What sort of conflicts are we likely to see relating to cultural difference? There are different practices, like I mentioned before. Uh, you know, quite a lot of the Asian communities, we don't like to leave the shoes inside a house, so that can be cause a different uh, conflicts, different type of conflict within the building if you have different practices. Uh, certainly, uh, if you ha are, are of a different religious background, so you might celebrate, uh, you might have celebrations on different days, and you might have different types of um, decorations, and that can cause a bit of conflict as well. So I imagine that there is those religious festivals might be out of sync with each other. So if we all celebrate a, a cultural festival on the same day, we might accept the noise that's associated with that. But if we have different cultural festivals on different days, we might be out of sync in terms of things like noise in the building or the smell of food or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, when you have a celebration, you're probably more likely to have people come in and go in. That can impact on the other residents in your building as well. How do you resolve these types of conflicts? Well, there are a number of different barriers. So there are institutional ones. There are also social and cultural ones. And the, the, the easiest way to resolve the more institutional ones is to change your rules. So if you uh, allow people to put up Christmas decorations, then you need to allow people to put up any kind of religious decoration or holiday decorations. You can't be discriminant on that front. Um, but you also need to be a bit more flexible in terms of including people. Um, if we have a more diverse um, 
community living in your building, then it's it's nice to open it up to, say, a different uh, language, for example, uh, to translate some of your documents into different languages that, so that people can understand what you're asking of them or what you're, asking, uh, what, what you're seeking opinions from them for. I guess there's probably a relationship between institutional or regulatory criteria for managing cultural diversity and probably intercultural policy as well, because I assume that those two things probably need to go together at some level. Yeah, I mean, certainly as part of the related project that we did, we, we interview a few strata managers and they did say that, yes, there are rules that they need to abide, but there are other things that they need to do on top of that when they come across situations like this, where there is a stronger mix of residents than they are normally used to. In 2015, Australia passed an important, although largely overlooked, milestone. It was the first year that the construction of attached dwellings overtook the construction of the stereotypical Australian detached home. And Australia is not alone when it comes to increasing housing densities in our cities. Countries all around the world have been spruiking compact city policies for decades. These policies focus on building up rather than building out. Well, we know that we have a, a, a rapid increasing in urban density and also in terms of the cultural mix of our cities, but both in terms of academic work and also uh, political work, there isn't much focus on both of these things at the same time. And if we expect more uh, a stronger increase in our urban density, but also a much stronger mix of our residents living together, then we need to look at these things together. How does it play out in the everyday Australian city racism and multicultural interaction? Yeah, well, this is an interesting question because increasingly um, high density living is an area where we're seeing a lot of cultural diversity. Chris Ho from the University of Technology, Sydney. Ed's talked about how, you know, diversity and density go together in terms of transforming the face of our cities. And if we think about a city like Sydney, um, we've got the suburbs that have um, the most number of apartments. And I guess anyone who lives in Sydney won't be surprised to know that, you know, Sydney CBD area, almost everyone lives in apartments. But we've also got other areas like Walleye Creek, like Rhodes, like Piermont, they're where almost everyone lives in apartments. And these are also the suburbs that have very high percentages of migrants, people born overseas. So the vast majority of people born overseas in these suburbs. So Do, do you have some stats there? I, I do, actually. Um, <laughs> I was just looking up the, the 2016 census. And so for the city of Sydney, the CBD area, 99% of people live in apartments, which, you know, is probably not surprising. There's high rises everywhere. Um, and it, over it, 80... it actually is surprising. I actually still find that surprising. <laughs> it's not what we think of in terms of where people, where Australians live, because, yeah. you know, obviously we still have that ideal of the quarter acre block and the suburban dream. But increasingly, you know, families are not moving into, they can't afford to, or, you know, they might be, there's emerging preferences for families to actually stay in cities. So, you know, in, in the city of Sydney, where we've got just about everyone living in apartments, um, over 80% of people were born overseas. But also these new areas like Walleye Creek. So Walleye Creek, um, which is just south of Sydney uh, city, 97% of people live in apartments. And, you know, when you sort of, you might have driven past Walleye Creek and you just see this huge urban jungle, like mm. it's quite a dramatic thing on the landscape to see. And again, we've got almost 80% of people born overseas in a place like that. 
And there's similar statistics for places like Rhodes, Piemont, Ultimo, and even places like Parramatta, so getting further out of um, the city. This is increasingly the way that our city is growing. You know, it's growing up. Um, And because of the migrants who are moving in there, they're very diverse suburbs. People who are coming from, you know, Asia, for instance, are very used to living in in high rises. They're coming from major metropolitan cities where everyone lives in a high rise and you do all your life and it's not a big deal. So they will naturally gravitate to that here. So, yeah, we do have high rises that are very culturally diverse. And what are the problems that we are likely to see or already seeing in these very diverse high rise developments? Yeah, well, obviously, you know, sharing your home with hundreds of other people is never going to be trouble-free, regardless of your cultural background. But um, in some of the research that we've done, strata managers who manage these buildings um, have said that sometimes cultural background is a factor. And, you know, as Ed said, it's often because people are coming from countries where there's a very different culture of apartment living. So it can be very mundane things like yeah, where you put your shoes, where you put your washing, hang your washing. So in a lot of Asian countries, it's very normal for people to hang their washing out on their balcony, for instance. You know, they don't have dryers. And yet here in uh, in Sydney, um, there's a lot of buildings that will expressly prohibit that but that may not necessarily be very clearly communicated to people. And, you know, it's hard to break those habits. And there can be all sorts of issues around noise, around the cooking smells, you know, like there's been complaints uh, of, you know, uh, ethnic food, quote unquote, which if you're, I suppose, an Australian-born person, you know, the smell of curry cooking can be um, something that you find um, off-putting. And, you know, there have been, I know in places like Singapore, there have been curry wars where... Um, no durian allowed in the building. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, it is, it, all these things can become quite almost politicised. I mean, for instance, in Singapore, curry has become such a politicised thing because it was used as a way of... Um, for some minority groups to kind of criticise other minority groups for their smelly cooking. Um, And then there was a counter movement saying, but actually curry exists in all of our cultures, you know, whether you're Indian, Chinese, Malay, we all have curry. So there was a backlash against the kind of, you know, curry fueled racism to have like, let's all cook curry day. Um, And it was kind of like a cultural, you know, use of curry to sort of as a sign of unity. I guess Singapore is an interesting case because the way that they've structured their housing is that they have a forced social mix. So they mix up different cultural groups in those buildings. And I guess curry there is being used to single out one of the cultural groups and use that cuisine as a as a political tool to make a, a broader political statement. Is that what's happening there? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the, the, the politics get very... Uh, complicated, I think, but definitely because Singapore is such a culturally diverse um, society and the government has done a bit of social engineering to try and capture that diversity within residential buildings. And because so many people live in um, government provided housing, you are, you know, sort of forced to live with people who, well, I mean, that's the same anywhere, you know, you don't get to choose your neighbours. But in, well, in Singapore, where there's been a lot of change with, for instance, a lot of migrants from China coming in. Um, there's been a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment. Um, 
which is overlaid on top of the existing, you know, anti-Indian, anti-Malay sentiment. Um, and so curry has been one of those things that's been used in this kind of, you know, war around culture. Do we have a curry in Australia? Is there a particular cultural practice that kind of comes to the fore in these debates? Or is it just across the senses, sight, sound, smell, everything? Yeah, I think it's it's multi-sensorial if you want to say that. I mean, cooking smells are always, they're a perennial issue that people are complaining about, but it is also about use of space. It's about noise. It's about certain cultural practices. For instance, you know, uh, Muslim residents might have prayer time and they'll gather in an area. This is what, an interesting story that our, one of our strata managers told us, that he was receiving some complaints about the Muslim residents and their prayer time. But when he looked into it, the issue wasn't actually the prayers. It was when the adults were praying, the children were running around making noise. And so the issue was about the kids and noise, not mm. about Muslim prayers. So, you know, a lot of the time these issues do look like they're racial or cultural, and often they're not. So what should we do about this? Uh, yeah, that's What can we question. do about this? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that there is a role for ordinary people who live in these buildings to, you know, accept that diversity is just part of normal life um, in a country like Australia, in a city like Sydney. And so just accept that, you know, the world is changing and you, you just need to, you need to be open to that. And there's a, a sense of openness, I think, that you need to have if you're going to move into one of these kinds of environments. Finding out about, you know, the maybe strange practices that your neighbours are engaging in, like talk to them about it, ask them about it and have some social activities. I mean, often high rises, because you've got so many hundreds of people living together, strangely, it can be quite an anonymising experience because you've got so many neighbours, it's really hard to get to know people. But, you know, it doesn't take a huge amount of effort to get to know some of your immediate neighbours um, and just break through that kind of anonymous that anonymity. I find it interesting that you say that you turn to the people who live in the buildings themselves as part of the solution. Indeed, you're, you're largely pitching the solution as within the people in the buildings themselves. This is something you need to take on and work at as a community who lives in this building. And it's not something that you would push onto an external regulatory body or the, or the tenancy management people or the strata people. Well, I think it is probably both. Yeah, I think there definitely is a role for regulators in all of this. Um, for instance, one of the things that we've been finding in our interviews is that the communication isn't always the best. So when people are coming from overseas and they're buying into a building, sometimes it's never really explained to them properly, you know, what are the bylaws? What are your responsibilities? Sometimes um, they've had, for instance, you know, real estate agents and solicitors and, you know, like, I mean, everyone thinks it's somebody else's responsibility to communicate those kinds of things. And there could be a, li a lot more, you know, sort of training, I, th I suppose, in the industry in terms of, well, whose job is it to communicate these kinds of things? And also in terms of strata committees, um, strata committees, I think, tend to be dominated by, you know, the usual suspects who are not new migrants t generally. So 
the older residents, um, English speakers um, of a certain age, you know, people that have time to do this sort of thing. And often they're the people that are not well placed to adapt to the changing demographic of their building. So there could be training opportunities for them. There could be changes in how strata committees operate to open up those kinds of structures for new new arrivals to take part, whether it's about translating, you know, meetings or documents or even something as simple as um, at the annual general meeting, sometimes we found that it'll be asked, oh, you know, does the existing committee just want to go on? You know, does the existing committee just want to continue on for another year? And everyone just sits back and goes, oh, yeah, they can keep going. Well, why why not actually open it up and say, is anyone interested in joining the committee? Mm. And, you know, we can help you if you need help. What you're pushing for there is a diversification of those committees themselves. And I wonder if we also need a diversification of kind of tenancy law and strata law as well. Well, probably. I mean, I think that, you know, generally in Australian society, we're trying to have regulations adapt to the changing demographic. And so, you know, we've done that in in many ways by, for instance, translating things into different languages, but that has been very uneven. So, you know, in terms of residential tenancy regulations, the strata industry, there's probably a bit of a delay in terms of their adapting to the demographic change. So there's a lot to be done at the institutional level as well as the everyday ordinary people level. How does this play out in terms of the public and the private spaces of a high-rise dwelling? Yeah, this has always been one of the issues around having um, regulation in this area because people see the home as private space. And obviously, you know, in your home, you're free to do what you want, you know, within reason. Um, But in terms of a a building, a high-rise building or a strata building, there's also some common areas, you know, that so um, foyers, lifts, you know, corridors, all the common spaces that people have to share need to have some kind of regulation. And I think the reason why there's been reluctance to regulate those areas is because it's seen as the private sphere of the home. But I think we need to acknowledge that as more and more people are living in high-rise buildings, that we do share these spaces and we have to manage these spaces together. And so there needs to be more attention on how that can, that can happen in an inclusive way. Are they sites for increased intercultural interaction? They inevitably are. I mean, you know, you bump into people in the lift, um, you're constantly having to negotiate with people in those common spaces. And so, you know, if you um, are upset by, you know, people leaving their shoes in the corridor or they're washing out or hanging decorations or whatever it is, there needs to be some way of managing those kinds of tensions. Um, And it needs to be done in a consistent and fair way. So if our cities are becoming more dense and the cultural profile is changing, what what should we do about this in terms of regulation and, and action in this space? Well, find out who lives in your building so that you can better cater to their specific needs. If there are different cultural backgrounds there, you might involve some of the residents to help translate the, 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 the meetings, for example, so that everyone understands what is going on uh, so that they can have an opinion too. There are other things like uh, sensitivity training for uh, strata managers because they not they don't necessarily understand all the different issues as well, and it can be quite different when you are dealing with a different cultural uh, background of residents, for example. So you might need to uh, involve other um, colleagues in some situations. Uh, certainly, in the work that I do, if I am going to interview 
uh, someone of an Arabic or Muslim background, I might check whether it's okay for me, a single male person, to go and interview a particular person if they are you know, a single female, for example. We might send someone else just so that we, we, we uh, respect their um, cultural background as well. You're listening to City Road on 2SER 107.3 in Sydney. I'm Dallas Rogers. We're talking to Edgar Liu and Chris Ho about two big changes in Australian cities. The changing cultural profile of our migrants and compact city living. And next, we talk about Australia's role in researching this global issue. How does it play out in the everyday Australian city racism and multicultural interaction? Yeah, well, I mean, Australian cities are obviously very culturally diverse and um, Australian research into this has been quite... It's been quite agenda-setting, really, globally, um, in terms of concepts like everyday multiculturalism. So um, some of our colleagues here in Sydney have really pioneered work on how do people on an everyday level get along or don't get along. So in local neighbourhoods, in schools, workplaces, um, recreation areas. And so this is something that I think affects us all. And there's been some really interesting research on how even though at a national level we might have moral panics about, you know, African gangs or Muslim terrorists or whatever it is, on a day-to-day level, most people just get along and um, cultural difference is not necessarily a barrier to living in close proximity to people who are very different from yourself. And I think that most people who live in a big city like Sydney will think of interacting with people from different cultural backgrounds as a completely normal part of everyday life. So this idea of everyday multiculturalism kind of stands opposed or additional to things like structural racism, which are built into institutions, or the the racism that you might think of when you just think about racism, something that somebody else does over there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a real uh, distinction, I think, to be made about big debates that are had in the media by our political leaders and, you know, perhaps sort of national level statistics on racism. It's not very good. (laughs) You know, like it's a pretty terrible story a lot of the time. And we know from um, surveys that racism exists and it's not going away. In fact, you know, for some groups, it's getting worse and worse. But on an everyday level, I think most people, you know, find ways of getting along, which isn't to say that there isn't everyday racism, because there are certainly instances of, um, you know, microaggressions and that kind of casual racism, uh, which, you know, a lot of the time doesn't get picked up or noticed even, um, except by by people who are the victims of it, maybe. But that isn't to say that on a broad level that, you know, we have a pretty successful multicultural society that's based on that kind of everyday acceptance of each other. As researchers, how do we investigate everyday multiculturalism? It's really interesting. Um, This is where uh, I find um, some of the really interesting work is being done. And it's not necessarily very theoretical. It's really nitty gritty. People getting out there into local communities, into school communities, um, neighbourhoods and hanging out, really, hanging out with people at a local level for extended periods of time and really documenting um, 
you know, how people are being affected by changes that are going on in their neighbourhoods. And so a lot of it is qualitative research where people are literally just hanging around, um, observing, participating and interviewing people. Um, it's great stuff. What's, what do they talk about when you interview them? Well, I mean, so I've done some of this work in um, local schools, for example, and uh, I picked an area of some of my research recently where there was some quite dramatic changes going on in terms of gentrification. So it was a traditionally working class migrant dominated area that was becoming gentrified and, you know, basically Anglo middle class professionals moving in. And the way that I went about it was I, you know, I sort of hung out in in local schools and I just watched uh, who's talking to who, like literally in the playground when parents drop off their kids where are they sitting in the playground? Who's talking to who? Who might be avoiding talking to other people? And then I did a bunch of interviews with um, people who we were calling, you know, the old and the new generations of people who were living in that area. And there were certainly um, tensions, you know, between people who were older and newer residents and people were struggling to find ways to talk about their anxieties, perhaps, because no one in Australia particularly likes talking about race. Um, People don't like talking about class either. So there's all sorts of interesting kind of uh, euphemisms that people use to avoid talking about basically race and class. And I guess as researchers, we're trying to read between the lines to see what people are saying. Chris, thanks for joining us today. No worries, Dallas. Thanks for joining us today, Ed. Thank you. If you like the show, you can find us on cityroadpod.org. 